Good morning, Crossroads. How's everybody feeling? Great. Love to hear it. My name is Ryan. I'm a, a guy here that they let preach once in a while. If you're new, welcome. Love that you're here. I hope that uh, you find a community here. Hope that you find ways to get plugged in. If you're looking for a home church, there's lots of ways. We'd love to uh, encourage you to, to ask around and find somebody that knows what they're talking about and look for ways to get connected because it's uh, a great church. I love, uh, I love being a part of a church where it seems like every week we get to commission people and send people out and sending people out to the nations and sending people out locally. I love being a part of that church. John and Rosa, I loved that video this morning. That was like old school mission trip update. It was like, I thought like we we're just going to, like I felt ready to call the kids up for a children's, like a children's sermon, you know, like that was awesome. I love that. I love that. If you're here looking for high production uh, service, you're in the wrong place. <clears throat> I want to uh, take a minute and get off the page before we even get on the page and do something that maybe I'll get in trouble for, but I'll ask for forgiveness later. I want to give a shout out to our children's ministry. Do we have an awesome children's ministry here? My wife and I have three little kids, and every week we are blessed to send our kids to this children's ministry where they're taught the Word of God, and they're loved, and they're cared for, and they're safe, and then we get to worship together, and I love it. And uh, you regularly hear that they're in need of volunteers. And my, so my wife and I kind of took this to heart several months ago, and we, we thought, you know what, we, we send our kids to the children's ministry every week. Maybe we could help out a little bit. Maybe we could actually contribute. And, and so we decided that once a month, that as a family, we're going to volunteer and, and be in the children's ministry. So the way that works for my wife and I is we trade off every other month. So... One month, my wife is in one of the kids' ministry classes helping out, and then the next month, somebody else, is, or the next month, I'm in there, and we trade. So six, six times a week, or six times a month, I mean. Year. Year. <laughs> six times a year. And uh, we were talking about this the other day, and I thought, man, how awesome would it be if every parent that sends their kids into the children's ministry just said, you know what, once a month, we'll go in there, and we'll help out. It's a pretty small sacrifice. Now being in the three-year-old class, a little bit of a sacrifice for me, but it works. I make it work. It's awesome, you know, and I just thought, my wife and I were talking about this and thought, how cool would it be if, if we all just said, you know what, we, if, if every parent here said, you know what, we'll take a month, we'll do that, and uh, we'll just, we'll go contribute to the life of the church. And that, how awesome would that be if Lindsay got an email this week from hundreds of parents that say, yeah, we'll take a month. And all of a sudden, she's got to say, you know what, we've got, a, we've got a, few, a, a few too many of you guys. Why don't you take a little break? Wouldn't that be awesome if she could say to our volunteers, hey, why don't you guys take a break rather than we're kind of drowning over here because somebody throw us a bone. So I'll just leave that with you parents uh, and consider it. And maybe even if you're not a parent, once a month, it's not a big deal. That'd be awesome. That's all... If I get in trouble for that later, it's okay. 
If you've been with us or if you're new with us this morning, this summer, we're in a series on the life of David. And it may, to some of you, have felt more like a series on the life of Saul. Uh, but we are going to talk about David again this morning. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 30 this morning. And some of you might say, wait a minute. We were in 1 Samuel 31 last week, weren't we? Yes. There's a very simple explanation for that. Uh, see, we, we study together, several of us, on, um, once a week we study the text together, and uh, there was some confusion several weeks ago. I was assigned 1 Samuel 30 uh, about six weeks ago, and then a, you know, a week ago Wednesday, Dan Mike called me up and said, hey, you're preaching this Sunday, right? And I said, no, next week. And so he preached 1 Samuel 31 last week, and now I'm on 1 Samuel 30 this week. Very simple. <laughs> and, uh, but it's okay, because one of the beautiful things about these stories, these texts, is that you'll find, if you read, if you read the story of 1 Samuel 30 and 1 Samuel 31, actually happens simultaneously. There are two different stories that are happening in the same time, which is really interesting, especially when you kind of put them together and see what's happening in both of those stories. Last week, we looked at the death of Saul and how Saul responded uh, in, in his time of desperation. And Dan Mike highlighted uh, this, he just pulled out this great theme of the text that when you live according to fleshly desire, it'll ultimately lead to death. And we see Saul uh, ultimately dying in uh, this life that he's created for himself. This week we're going to look at David and how he responds in one of his lowest moments. So I want to pray. Do we got praying folks in this church? Is there anybody that would commit this morning to um, praying for us while I preach? Uh, pray for me. And um, is there anyone that would actually commit to praying for us? Well, that, that the Lord would speak to us through me to you, and that we could be. Would anyone pray for us in that this morning? As as I pr- thank you, I see a couple of hands. I uh, come in a little bit distracted this morning uh, with. Right before I left here, I got news of a couple of different guys that I dearly love and respect that had these freak accidents over the weekend and are in the hospital and two separate events and just kind of processing that this morning. So I don't like to make excuses of why things might be, distra- why things might be a little bit distracted. I, um, so this morning, if things do seem a little distracted, it's the fault of those of you that just raised your hands <laughs> for not praying hard enough. That's how this works. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dig into 1 Samuel 30. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to come and seek you and serve you and learn from your word and worship you. Thank you that we get to do that in community and without fear of persecution. Pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that we might know you better. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to read 1 Samuel 30. We like to do this thing here at Crossroads where we stand out of respect for the Word of God. You don't have to, but you may join me in standing. I'm going to read 
If you uh, have heard me preach before, you know I like to read large portions of Scripture. So we're going to read essentially all of 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse 1. It says, David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and then taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in his spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, the Lord answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Basor Ravine, where some stayed behind, for 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and the 400 men continued the pursuit. They found an, Egypt, an Egyptian in the field and brought, to him, and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had, lo- he had not eaten any food or drank any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, to whom do you belong and, and where do you come from? The man answered, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We, ra- we raided the Negev of the Carathites in the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David answered him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down there. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Basor Ravine. They came out to meet David and, and the people with him. As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and his children and go. But David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. 
he has protected us and handed, us over, handed over to, to us the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what, we say, to what you say? The share of the men who stayed with the supplies is to be the same of, that who, of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. And David made this a statute and ordinance from, for Israel from this day or from that day to this. When David arrived at Ziklag, he, went, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah who were his friends, saying, here is a present for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemy. We'll stop there because I can't pronounce all the names after that. Go ahead and have a seat. No, I'm serious. That's why I didn't read that last part. Not because it's not important, because it'll be distracting for me to try to pronounce all the names that are after that. When I... Uh, we, uh, at the British House of Prayer, we have this summer program where we take youth groups in and, uh, for a mission trip, and we do a lot of stuff with them. One of the things we do is we do a lot of Bible study and biblical teaching. And one of the things that I try to teach the students is when you're reading the Word, to, before we jump into application and before we even jump into trying to interpret the text, is let's just make some observations and let's ask some questions of the text. And so when I do that with this text, there's a couple of questions that that rise up immediately, even in verse 1. Uh, two of those would be, what's the deal with Ziklag? And uh, who are these Amalekites? Those seem to be kind of important pieces of this story. So let's explore that for a moment. Let's start with the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? Does anybody remember who the Amalekites are? Where have we seen them before? Promised land. Okay. Well, the Amalekites, there's a couple of things that we know about the Amalekites. Number one, the Amalekites are bullies. The Amalekites are, uh, it's not a Philistine uh, nation that we know of. Rather, it's this, 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 this nation of, of renegades who like to lurk in the shadows and they pick off the vulnerable and they don't fight like they don't fight a fair fight. They don't fight like men face to face. Rather, they kind of shirk, they, they kind of lurk in the shadows and then they pick off the sick and the elderly and the poor and the marginalized. And that's how they fight their battles. They're bullies. And you can see some of this from the text, right? You see that the, uh, the Amalekites, they, they, they pick off the, the, the city of Ziklag. Uh, apparently when there's no fighting men in the city, it seems to me that the, the fighting men have all left, and it makes me wonder, have they been kind of watching Ziklag and just waiting for the men to leave, and once they see them leave, okay, now let's go get the women and children and take the plunder when they're defenseless? Uh, you see also that they, uh, they don't care for the, the hurting and the poor. You see that even with this Egyptian slave, right? Is that this Egyptian slave is, is just left to die. He seems to be dead weight for the Amalekites, and so they just leave him to die. And so this, these are the Amalekites. They're, they're bullies. Uh, they don't fight fairly. What you also see throughout the story is that these Amalekites have been oppressing Israel throughout their history. We read about the Amalekites that they're the ones that when Israel is going through the desert, they pick off Israelites' poor and the, the elderly and the sick that are lagging behind. And God hates this. As a matter of fact, God hates this so much. God, 
despises the bully so much that he says to Saul, if you remember earlier in, in 1 Samuel, he says to Saul, I want you to destroy the Amalekites. I'm sick and tired of these Amalekites picking on my people, not fighting fairly, picking on the poor and the oppressed. I want you to wipe them off the face of the earth. That's what, Paul, that's what God says to Saul. And in that story, you find uh, the heart of Saul being revealed early on. This is soon after Saul is anointed king. Saul thinks that he knows better than God, as we see often in, the, in Saul's journey. Is that he thinks he knows better. He, he obeys God only as far as it serves him well. And as soon as Saul thinks that he knows better than God, then Saul takes on uh, his own plans. And he does this with the Amalekites. God says, I want you to wipe them off the face of the earth. What does Saul do? Well, Saul fights a good fight. He defeats them. But he says, you know what? I think what would actually be better is if we keep some of the plunder to ourselves and we keep the king and some other officials alive. So it's interesting that the Amalekites are even here because of Saul's disobedience, which is very compelling in this story. Now what's the deal with Ziklag? We've got to ask that question because that seems to be a pretty important part of this story. What do we know about Ziklag? Why is Paul in, or why is David in Ziklag? Well, if you read just the chapter before, which we haven't studied in this series, but in chapter 29, you find that Ziklag is a Philistine city. Why in the world is David in a city of the Philistines? Well, if you follow the story of David, he's, in the, he's been living in the city of Ziklag, a Philistine city, for about a year. Why has he been living there for about a year? Well, because Saul has been uh, chasing David through the wilderness, so caught up in his own self-consumption and his fear and control that he leaves his post uh, as the king and goes out into the desert to chase down David to kill him. He's been doing this for about seven or eight years. That's about how long David's running through the wilderness and hiding in caves. Uh, And David finally gets fed up with it and says, you know what I'm going to do? David is so terrified of these Philistines. I know that he's not going to chase me into Philistine territory. I'll go into the Philistine territory, and then I'll, find, I'll take my chances with them because I'm just tired of running from Saul. That's why David's in Ziklag. That's why he's in Philistine territory. You find that he finds favor with Achish, the king of Ziklag, and then uh, Achish gives him this land of Ziklag to settle in with him and his men. Now, it says in the beginning of our text, when David and the men reached Ziklag on the third day, they're going back to Ziklag. Why are they going back to Ziklag? Well, again, if you're reading the chapter before this, the Philistines are are gearing up to go wage war on Israel again, the Israelites. And David says to Achish, let me go with you and I will show my king what I am able to do. Now, what was David actually going to do? We don't know. The text does not tell us. Was he going to pull a Trojan horse type of thing and turn and, 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 and conquer the Philistines? Or was he actually going to follow through and, and fight against his own people? We don't know. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. But what we do know is that in the story, Achish's men, again, the Philistines, when they're just about to go out into battle, they look around and they see David and all of these Hebrews. 
And they say, hey, what are these Hebrew men doing with us? And Achish says to his men, he says, oh, David, he's been living with me for a year. I found no fault in him. He's going to fight with us. It's going to be okay. And the Philistine army says, no, 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 no. This is the one of whom it was said that Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. This is not going to turn out well for us. You've got to send him back. So Achish goes back to David and says, David, I'm sorry. I trust you, but my men aren't going to fight with you. You've got to go back home. This is why David's going back to Ziklag, because he's just been rejected even by his enemy. So let's put this all together in context here for a moment. Let's just track David's life up until this point, up until where we are today in the story. About 10 or 15 years before this, David is anointed by Samuel as king of Israel because God has rejected Saul. So David is anointed king of Israel, and you find that soon after that, he goes out to fight Goliath, and in the midst of that, his own brothers are jealous of him and reject him. So because he's anointed king and he's a fighting man, his brothers get jealous of him and re- reject him. He finally gets into the service of Saul, into the, into, the, into the palace, into the courtyard, and soon he finds that Saul's trying to kill him. And so he, so he runs away from Saul. In the process, he loses his best friend named Jonathan. He's got to separate from Jonathan. Somewhere in the process, this wife that was promised to him that he loved and loved him is actually taken from him and given to another man. Finally, David is running through the caves for seven years, surrounded by what the text calls worthless fellows. David, or Saul is pursuing him, trying to kill him. He's lost everything. He finally finds refuge in enemy territory. That's the last place that he can find refuge is in enemy territory. And now even the enemy has rejected him. He goes back to the only place that he has left and finds that destroyed and burned. And all of the women and children are gone. And they have no idea what's at this point. David doesn't know if the women and children are alive or not. All he knows is that he has lost everything. Everything. What we find here in in David's life is the lowest point that he has been in yet. The absolute lowest point. He has lost everything. And now even the worthless fellows that he's surrounded himself with want to kill him. And it says that he uh, weeps bitterly until he has no strength left to weep. What we find here is a man that is so grievous in his spirit that he cannot even weep at this point. And we should be asking at this point, how is David going to respond? At this point, David seems, he's got a couple of faults along the way, but he seems to be a man of integrity that seeks God and is obedient to God. How is David going to respond now? Is this going to be the breaking point for David? I wonder how would we respond in that situation? When we're just trying to be obedient to God's will, when we're trying our best to do what God is telling us to do, and everything is going wrong, and we find ourselves at our lowest point, how would we respond in that situation? I have a brother who's a missionary out in Central Asia in a small country called Kyrgyzstan. And uh, several years ago, 
their firstborn uh, daughter was about 10 months old. And she started getting ill. And they didn't think a whole lot about it at first. And she just continued to get more and more sick. And uh, her temperature went up. She got a fever. And uh, she started getting really lethargic. And uh, they're, they're watching this over a day or two. And her temperature gets all the way up to about 105. And they're out in, uh, in, in this, uh, this area of the world. Where there's not great health care available to them. And they're watching this thing. And they're starting to get pretty concerned. And she's got a, a fever of 105 for, I think this went on for four or five days. And so they call up a couple of their, their doctor friends. And they do their best to try and explain the situation and the circumstance and uh, diagnose what's going on. And I had a couple of different doctor friends that said, uh, Jeff, we don't know exactly what this is, but based on what you're telling me, it's not good. You've got to get your, your daughter out of the country and into good health care. And so they start making phone calls and they arrange for a, a, a medical flight to come in, chartered a medical flight to fly from London to Kyrgyzstan. It's going to be another 24 hours before an uh, ambulance can get to their house and the plane can get to Kyrgyzstan and then another 10-hour flight into London before they can actually get into health care. And all the while, they're helplessly watching their daughter die before their eyes. Literally, uh, watching their daughter, labored breathing, dying before their eyes. And it was in the midst of this that my sister-in-law, Becky, felt the Lord speak. And she felt, she felt like the Lord said this, Will you worship me? Will you worship me in the midst of this? Right now, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this agony, in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this chaos, in this uncertainty, will you worship me? And they started wrestling with these questions like, if, 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 God's, if this is what it's going to cost to follow God's will in our lives, is it worth it? If following God's will in my life is going to cost me the most precious things to me, is it worth it? Is he worth it? And I think that's a question that we need to ask because I think we bought into this lie in our culture that following Jesus is going to make you safe and comfortable and he wants you to be happy and he wants you to have good health and a secure bank account and be surrounded by good friends. And if you're not, then there's something wrong. And I, I even hear sometimes people saying, this is so weird. I'm following Jesus and all this stuff seems to be going wrong in my life. And then I think about Peter and Peter's epistle where he, he writes and he says, man, don't think it strange when these bad things happen to you as if something strange is happening. But remember, this is the very thing that Jesus said was going to happen. If that's what it costs to follow Jesus' will in your life, is it worth it? Is he worth it? Is he worthy to be praised in the midst of difficulty in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, is he worth it? Is he worthy? When we go back to our story, there's this phrase in here that just uh, resonates in my spirit. Because when we see David at his lowest point, when we see David in this point of agony where he can't even weep anymore, it says that his men were bitter in spirit 
but David found strength in the Lord his God. But David found strength in the Lord his God. And friends, we got to understand where David is in this moment because this is before God promises him any relief. This is before God says, go out and overtake because you're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restore you. This is before he gets his fortunes back. This is before he gets back into Israel and becomes king. This is in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his sorrow, at his lowest point. It says he finds strength in the Lord his God. And I wonder when we, when we find ourselves in those points, those low, desperate points, when everything seems to be going wrong, where do we find our strength? Where do we run to and where do we turn to find our strength and our comfort? And maybe some of us are like Saul and we run to our own strength and we try to take things into our own hands. And, and, and maybe like, like Rod talked about a couple of weeks ago, we run to these forms of spirituality that may even have the label of Christian on them, but really only serve for our own comfort and our own good. Or maybe we run to things like pornography or drugs or alcohol. And that's where we find our comfort. When our marriage isn't quite going the way we want, maybe we run elsewhere to find the comfort that we think that our marriage is supposed to bring us. Or maybe, uh, maybe it's not destructive patterns like that. Maybe it's, uh, here, here, here it is for me. Uh, it's my bike. I love cycling. I absolutely love cycling. And when things are getting difficult, I'll tell you, there's few things that sound as good as just getting on my bike and just riding as hard as I can for as long as I can. Man, I love that. And this is something my wife and I process. Is that healthy? You know, there, is it, do I fall into unhealthy patterns there? Where do, we, where do we run in times of difficulty and in times of pain and in times of sorrow? David... It says, found his strength in the Lord his God. And what I love about this series with David and the life of David is that we get window, a window not just into the narrative of David's life, but we get a, a window into David's heart through the Psalms. And there's a couple of Psalms that resonate with me when I think about this kind of story. I think about Psalm uh, 13. And man, these, are, these kind of messages are, are difficult for me to preach in a church like this because I know that there's some of you here that have dealt with unspeakable pain and unspeakable tragedy. The kind of pain that I only pray that I would never experience. And I know there's some of you that have walked through it in such beautiful and godly ways. But here's the deal with pain and suffering is it's never, a, it's never a point of comparison, right? When you find, that, when you find yourself in that low point, it's never, it's never comforting to have somebody say, you know what, well, I have a friend that went through that, and if they went through it, you can do it. That's never comforting, because when it's in your lowest point, that's your lowest point. And at your lowest point, you need to find comfort and strength. Think about Psalm 13, 
David writes, and we don't know when David is writing this, I, but I wonder, is it at a time like this? Is, this? is this when he's in Ziklag? We don't know. But it says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? See, we live in this culture, especially in this West Michigan Christian culture, where we've got to have it all together, or at least we think that we do. And in times of trouble, we've got to be strong, and we've got to put on our strong face. And yet when I see David here, I see a man who's not afraid to weep, who's not afraid to express his agony even to God. And he's saying, God, how long will you forget me forever? But when you read on in this psalm, it ends with verse 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. I love that in these psalms you see David is not afraid to express his agony to God. And yet in the very same breath he's declaring his trust in God. You see that even though he expresses his agony. And friends I think God is okay with us wrestling with him in our agony and expressing this agony. And I don't read this and I don't think that David is actually thinking that, that God has forsaken him. I think he's expressing his agony, saying, God, this is what it feels like in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my sorrow. It feels like you're nowhere to be found. And maybe some of you guys are at that point this morning where you're wrestling and you're crying out to God and it just feels like God is so far from you. And yet, can you say with David, but I trust in your unfailing love. I trust in your faithfulness. I know that you're going to get me through this. I know it. Right now it's painful and it hurts and it's confusing and it doesn't make sense, but I know that you're faithful. I think about Psalm 22. Again, David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day but you do not answer. By night, I am not silent. I love this psalm because this is the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. As Jesus is taking his dying breaths on the cross, he says, my God, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in one sense, he was forsaken by God. That's the power of the cross, is that on the cross, Jesus took my place and what I deserve being forsaken by God because of my sin. And in one very real sense, Jesus was forsaken by God. But there's this other very real sense that when you read through this psalm, Jesus is not only expressing agony and experiencing the forsakenness of his God, but he's also declaring his undying trust in his Father and declaring the goodness of his Father. If you keep reading on in like verse uh, 19, it says, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength. Listen to that, that confidence that even Jesus has on the cross. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me 
from the horns of the wild ox. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. And so what do we do with this? What do we do in... So one, of the, one of the dangers of, of studying a life like David is it just becomes an example. Or even studying the life of Jesus as we take Jesus to be this example that he set. And then we, we, we read stories like this of David and we read stories like Jesus. And then we, we apply it in this way. Well, if David went through this, David was just a man like you and I. And if David endured it, then you can endure it. If Jesus endured it, remember, remember Jesus was fully man, and if he endured it, then you can endure it. And then it becomes an issue of comparison. Where if you were just a little bit stronger, if you just had a little bit more strength, then you will be able to endure it. Because, right? Because David, and I think when you, when you interpret the text in that way, I think you miss the power of the cross. Because there's this phrase early in 1 Samuel that I find very compelling. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, and you don't need to turn there, but this is when Samuel comes and anoints David. It says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. The Spirit of of the Lord came upon David in power. And just after that, what you find is the very next sentence is that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, we could get into a theological quagmire, what that all means, which I'm not going to do this morning. Rather, I want to look to the cross because the power of the cross isn't just that Jesus endured difficult suffering as an example that we can do the same. Because the power of the cross is that Jesus died to create a way for us to experience the same power through the Holy Spirit that David experienced. The same power that Luke's gospel so clearly articulates that Jesus himself experienced through the Holy Spirit. That friends, the reason that we can endure suffering differently than the world endures suffering. And, and friends, this is one of our greatest testimonies to the world is how we suffer. That we suffer differently than this world. And hear me clearly, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will endure suffering. And how we endure that suffering is a testimony to the world that Jesus is alive. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus. That you have the same Holy Spirit that empowered David. That we don't have to do this on our own strength. Because in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the confusion and chaos, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will give you the strength to make it through to another day. And hear this, in the midst of the pain. He may not relieve the pain in that moment, but he will give you the strength to endure that pain and to endure it well. And this is the power of the cross, is that we don't suffer on our own strength. We suffer with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, the same spirit that David had, the same spirit 
that Jesus had. You have been baptized. That's the, that's the language that the Bible uses. That as a follower of Jesus, you're clothed, you're washed, you're immersed, you're baptized in this Holy Spirit. You're washed clean. Now, this is, uh, these, these stories are also difficult to preach because uh, we have a story here where David... When you follow through to the story, God does restore him. He trusts in the Lord and God does restore him. And we can't ignore that. And it's tricky to preach because we have other stories in, in the text where it doesn't end well with people, right? You've got stories like John the Baptist who is so faithful to God's call in his life. And yet in his dying day when he goes and asks Jesus, Am I, are you going to save me? Are you going to rescue me? And Jesus' response essentially is, John, you're going to die in prison. This isn't going to end well for you. John, don't be offended. We've got those kind of stories. We've got the stories in history of all of the apostles, except possibly with the exception of the apostle John, uh, die as a martyr because of God's call on their life. But then you have these other stories where things do end well. And God does restore. And God does restore fortunes and comfort and, and fame. And, and this is one of those stories. And so what do we do with that? Well, I find it compelling when you read through this. Not simply the fact that God does restore and redeem David. But I find it compelling when you look at David's heart and how he responds to that. Remember, it says that uh, God says to Samuel that David is a man after his own heart, which, which I, I take as not only a man that desires to know God's heart, but a man that represents God's heart. That when we see David, we get a window into the very heart of God. And I find it very compelling how David responds to the grace and the restoration that God shows in his life. Think about this, when David comes across this Egyptian who's one of the Amalekite slaves who has just burned and pillaged his village. How does David respond to him? With grace and with mercy. The same grace that God showed to David, he extends even to an enemy slave. Or when he comes back to these men that were too tired, which is so reminiscent of Jesus' parable in Matthew 20 of the, the workers in the vineyard where you guys know the, the parable. Uh, there's these workers that come and the, the manager promises to give them the, a day's wage and then more come later and he promises to give them a day's wage and then people come and work for one hour and the manager gives them all the same and some are offended at it. And the manager says, why are, are you offended at my generosity? Reminiscent here of David comes back to these men who are too tired and they're left at this brook. And some of his men are like, they say, David, forget about these guys. Forget about these fools. We'll take the plunder. And David says, no, you don't understand. This is what the Lord has done. This, is, this isn't something that we have earned I haven't earned this on my own. This is something that God has done. And because God has done it, we're going to share this freely among everybody. Or you think about how David, uh, even when he gets back, and he sends gifts to those that would not give him shelter. But it says they visited him. But that, that implies also that they did not give him shelter. And what does he do? He gives them gifts. He extends the grace 
and the restoration that God shows to him, to those around him. See, David here is fulfilling God's call on Israel, which is God's call on all people of God. That when God blesses us, that we would be a blessing to the people around us. And I wonder, for some of us, we're uh, in places of difficulty and pain, and there's others that have experienced the restoration and the blessing of God. And I wonder, how do we respond to that situation? Do we hoard that to ourselves? Or what if we're in a situation like David where all of this is happening because of the rebellion of Saul? You guys, do you guys understand that? All of this that's happening is because of Saul's rebellion. And it's, David is reaping the consequences of Saul's rebellion. And how does he respond to that? He could very easily lord this over Saul. Say, Saul, look, you, you intended it this way, but look at what I've done. Look what I've been able to do. Or do we hoard it to ourselves and, and build our own kingdom and, and so that we can kind of keep that big bad world out and kind of control our interactions with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized on our terms? After all, this is God's blessing on my life. I worked hard for this. How do you respond when God blesses you? Let's again think about Jesus' life on the cross at the hands of the man who just crucified him. What does he do? He extends grace and he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I love the heart of God that is revealed in David, a God who loves to bless and he blesses his people to be a blessing to the people around them. So let's, let's land this plane here a little bit. Let's think about what this means for us today. And we can have uh, the band come back up. Maybe you're here this morning uh, and you're again in that time of difficulty and trial and suffering. And you're wrestling with God. And you're crying out to God. And you're looking for relief. And like David, you feel like you can find no relief. And maybe like David, it's been 10 years. I just want to simply say, keep crying out to God. Keep crying out to God because he will give you the strength. You don't have to find the strength on your own. He will give you the strength. He will give you the relief. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in that place and you've been running to these other things. Maybe healthy, maybe unhealthy. But undoubtedly what you're finding is that it is not giving you relief. Undoubtedly you're finding that all that happens when you run to the comforts of this world and the pleasures of this flesh is it leaves you empty simply wanting more. And then you have to give more and more and more until you find yourself like Saul at an absolutely desperate end. I want to say to you this morning, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus, and he will give you strength. He may not relieve your pain in the moment, but he will give you strength. Maybe you're a person that's in a season of blessing right now. God has blessed you. Bless God for that. How will you respond to that?
What will you do with that blessing that God has given you? Will you be the people that bless those around you? Maybe you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever. Maybe you don't know this man Jesus and you're trying to figure this thing out and you're wondering what's this Jesus all about? What does it mean to be a Christian? And maybe you've been surrounded in this world where you've thought that following Jesus is all about following rules. It's all about doing the right stuff. I want to invite you this morning to come to Jesus and find a man that meets you in the midst of your pain. That it's not about following rules. It's not about doing the right thing. It's about a man who died on a cross so that you can be free. Come meet that Jesus this morning. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for your spirit. Thanks for guiding us and speaking to us. Thanks for creating a way so that we could experience uh, the freedom. Pray this morning for those that are in difficult times that you would strengthen. Just as you promised you would, I pray that you would strengthen. Pray for those that are doubting this morning that you would give them a gift of faith. Pray, God, that those that you have blessed this morning would have a spirit of mercy and justice. Thank you above all, Jesus, for your cross and your sacrifice. Amen.